Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Um, we've got a pretty interesting panel today, and a very important aspect, of course, of all of this is cyber security. And I'm just going to talk very briefly, give you a kind of overview on this. You probably know it all already, but just in case you don't. And then I'm going to introduce the panellists who are going to talk about five minutes each, um, and then we're going to crack into the Q&A, the question and answer. So do have some good questions ready. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of hype about this. There's also a lot of um, misunderstanding, I think, about what cyber threats really are. And people talk about cyber war, cyber warfare. Let's just break this down. Um, because there are different aspects to this, um, to cyber threats. The most common, as you probably know, is um, cyber crime. Organised criminals trying to get information on you for personal gain, or rather for, for, for collective gain, to steal your data. There is cyber espionage, which is pretty rare, but um, we are seeing continual um, probing attacks whether they be phishing or with a PH uh, or other forms of uh, intrusion by foreign agencies. Usually the, the word that nobody ever dares speak of is China. Um, it's, as you know, incredibly hard to actually assign exactly where um, attacks come from, particularly if it's a DDoS, a distributed denial-of-service attack. Even in the Estonia attacks uh, of 2007, where Estonia, one of the most wired countries in Europe, um, was essentially brought to a grinding halt for several weeks in May 2007. Um, it was, the Estonian government had no doubt in their mind that the originator of the attacks were, were in Russia, but it was very difficult for them to actually pin the blame. There was nothing actually saying the Kremlin did this, but um, all the political reasons were there and they were certain of it. But what essentially happened was that um, Russian sympathisers activated their botnets, their robotic networks of zombified computers in countries like Vietnam, Peru, Egypt, even the United States and the UK. So an array of thousands of computers that had essentially become zombified, been taken over because they had malware in them, um, they were able to bombard Estonia's websites, the Ministry of Defence, telecoms, banking, uh, journalism, even the, uh, the portal of the president's own website, were all brought down by distributed denial-of-service attacks um, over a period of time. And the only way Estonia got out of this was by actually switching off their internet connection to the outside world, which is a pretty drastic measure. And it was a wake-up call. It was the first proper cyber attack on a NATO member country, uh, which prompted a lot of rethink, and now Tallinn is a centre of, um, of excellence for sort of cyber security. Um, so the cyber espionage, the cyber crime... Cyber warfare is something that we haven't really seen on a big scale, but that could possibly class as one, um, one aspect of it, although it wasn't declared. Um, there were reports of cyber attacks on Georgia's uh, internet in the clashes of 2008, 2009, I forget, which was a few years ago in the summer. Um, and there, is, there are various forms of cyber extortion and so on. But I think primarily, and just numerically, the biggest threat um, is commercial. Um, and 
the government, as you probably know, has set up some years ago uh, an office of cybersecurity in the Cabinet Office, which oversees this country's um, cybersecurity programme. They've put 650 million new pounds of business, sorry, 650 million pounds worth of new money into cybersecurity in the recent Security and Defence Review. And at GCHQ down in Cheltenham at the Government Communications Headquarters, they've got a team uh, working full-time on ways to, to combat this. And it's, it is, it's a slow-motion war um, that people are continually fighting, um, and they can't rest for a minute. It's like a treadmill. The moment they come up with something that they think they've patched up or blocked up one angle, organised cyber criminals or foreign agencies will look at another way to get in. So it's a pretty dynamic and constantly moving battle. Let me introduce the, uh, the various panellists now. Um, and forgive me, because I'm going to break my own rule. I hate looking at notes, but I'm going to have to do it, because these people are, are so well qualified that if I miss out their qualifications, they'll hate me. Um, starting with Misha Glenny. Um, probably needs no introduction. Uh, former colleague of mine at BBC. Um, very well-known author. Originally started out as renowned expert on Eastern Europe and all the Balkan conflicts, um, but he is also an award-winning writer and broadcaster. He's bringing out a book called Dark Market on Cybercrime, which I think is coming out in October. September. September. Okay, blame the blurb. Um, he, um, his, his last book, McMafia, um, was a journey through the global criminal underworld. So somebody who is very well um, qualified to talk about the criminal aspects of cybersecurity. Um, I'm going to turn to, correct my accent if it's wrong, Inmaculada Martinez. Okay, está bien. All right, um, let's just call her Inmar, it's much shorter. Um, Inmar is, um, she's a partner at Opus Corporate Finance. Um, she's a co-founder of Agora 9, which is a leading intelligence organization uh, in the digital sector. Um, she is an entrepreneur in the mobile industry, and she's been written up by both Fortune and Time magazines as one of Europe's top talents in human factors and social engagement through technology. That will mean lots to you and nothing to me, but um, she's incredibly important. Um, <laughs> Henry Harrison um, is technical director for Detica. Uh, I've been to some of their um, symposiums, and uh, they're worth listening to. Um, Henry has spent pretty much all of his career working um, with innovations in the digital arena. Um, as technical director of Detica, which I'm sure you've all heard of, um, he works with a lot of their security programs. Um, he also works with government organizations. And I think I should just make it really clear that this whole digital cyber security thing is very much a partnership. The government can't do it on its own. Private industry can't do it on its own. It's got to be a partnership. Um, and actually, the same applies to the whole arena of security and counterterrorism. But, um, but I'd be very interested to hear what he's got to say about that. He's very much focusing on cyber security. Um, and then Damien Collins, at the end there, uh, who um, has turned to the dark side from having worked for 10 years with MNC Saatchi, um, is probably known to many of you as an MP. He's the um, chair, I think, of the Conservative Arts and Creative Industries Network. Um, he's a member of the House of Commons Select Committee for Culture, Media, Sport and the Olympics. Um, and he was, as I say, for 10 years with MNC Saatchi, and he was listed among the top 50 names a few years ago 
for the future in public life in Britain uh, in the first Courvoisier the Future 500, um, which um, sounds very impressive. I'm going to start... <laughs> I'm going to start with... Um, well, let's just start <coughs> with Misha, um, if you'd like to give us a sort of five-minute resume. Will do. Um, so, for the past uh, two or three years or so, I've been... Uh, uh, I, I've been investigating cybercrime and related activity. And just to enhance um, Frank's uh, pithy opening, um, within the area of cybercrime, there are two sections, the cybercrime and the cyber-industrial espionage. 34%, according to Verizon's last report, of malfeasance on the web is company-to-company espionage. Um, however, we know very, very little about it because a company that has been hacked successfully uh, tends not to advertise the fact. And this is why the issue, one of the many, many issues going through uh, parliaments, legislatures all over the world at the moment is the issue of reporting requirements, particularly of corporates, uh, reporting requirements that in the event of, of their being hacked. So that's a very uh, important issue. But anyway, when I came to this, um, although Henry is sitting uh, next to me, we are now seeing hundreds of billions of dollars a year put into cybersecurity. Um, these are vast sums of money, and they're ramping up the whole time. Um, this is private money. This is government money. And yet, in the past three weeks, we've seen uh, two groups, Anonymous and Lulsec, and there are a bunch of others as well, expose not just companies like Sony, but organizations like the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States uh, for uh, having basic errors in their security system. Now, Anonymous and Lulzsec don't actually, when they hack a company successfully or, or a government, they don't uh, use the data for their own personal financial gain. And one of the things that they're trying to say uh, is look how poorly companies and governments are protecting your data because, of course, it's us who will suffer if we were hacked, if the same hack took place by a, uh, a criminal gang. And so although Anonymous are being excoriated by establishments around the world, they are actually providing a service in demonstrating that for all of the money that is being poured into cybersecurity, we are all still incredibly vulnerable. And so you can take it from me that there are two types of companies, corporations in this world. Those that know they've been hacked and those that don't know that they've been hacked. And that's basically what we're dealing with. Uh, in the course of my researches to do dark market, I spoke to uh, a really brilliant hacker who in his criminal guise was known as Iceman. Uh, his real name is Max Vision, which he changed from Max Butler. He's now serving 13 years in a penitentiary in California. And he's, a, he's, a, he's got a planetary-sized brain, this guy. Frankly, he shouldn't be in prison. He should be, if not at GCHQ, then certainly at the NSA. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, and his story, his, his descent into criminality is rather a tragic one, in my opinion. But I asked him about his penetration testing work because he was about the best penetration tester on the West Coast before he, he turned to crime. And he said there was only one company in the whole of the United States that I could not crack, and that was one of the big pharmaceutical companies. I can't tell you the name here now, uh, but it's one of the major American pharmaceutical companies. He said he was absolutely livid when he couldn't do it. 
Uh, and he said, so, you know, so I, of course, I launched a phishing attack, and I was in there within five minutes. So what he was doing was just checking the digital defenses. He wasn't even beginning to look at the social engineering. With social engineering, somebody like Max, but Max Butler can get in anywhere within about uh, two, to, two to five minutes. So um, <clears throat> when I looked at this subject, I thought, this is really interesting. We're pouring all this money into cybersecurity, and yet we're all being hacked. You know, we're all being hacked silly. So what are we doing? Well, I then started looking at the hackers themselves and realized that absolutely no money at all is going into research into the profile, psychological, behavioral, and so on, of hackers, except for a tiny little unit in Turin called the Hacker Profiling Project, which is a really excellent thing, but it's a UN-associated operation, and so it's underfunded, nobody cares about it, and yet it is explaining things which everybody needs to know. Because unless we engage with hackers, unless we understand where they're coming from, why they're doing it, or whatever, we can pour as much money as we like into cybersecurity, but you will not be safe until you get the people who really understand what is going on in the cyber world working on your behalf. So uh, I would say cybersecurity, absolutely essential, and solutions that people like Henry are coming up with, absolutely essential, but until you start engaging with human intelligence, you're never going to get anywhere. Thank you. Henry. Okay, so I'm just going to start by, uh, by, by picking up on something you said at the beginning, Frank. You said cyber espionage is incredibly rare. I think I agree entirely with what Misha said, which is cyber espionage is everywhere. It's incredibly common. Sorry, what I meant... No, I didn't say it's incredibly rare. <laughs> compared to cyber crime... So again, I would disagree, broadly okay. speaking. So uh, Misha said there are two types of companies, those who've been hacked yeah. and those who don't know they've been hacked. And that's, broadly speaking, from our experience, right. Mm. Um, uh, we're going to talk a little bit towards the end about who's, who's doing this, but um, if, you, if, you, um, uh, uh, if you start looking at what's going on when you're dealing in, in, in this space, which is what we do day to day, you find that um, you know, there, there has been a remarkable news cycle over the last six months or so about stories about organisations getting hacked and data getting lost. Um, some of those are news stories because those who've done it, like Anonymous and Lulzsec, have chosen to go out and get publicity for it. That's what they want. Some of it, it's been because there's been a leak or someone's, someone's said something, for example, the IMF um, talking about um, their incidents or RSA. Um, but if you look at those latter ones where it's not the interest of the attacker to publicise it, um, I can tell you from experience that there are plenty more incidents, major incidents, which would be significant news stories, which are absolutely not being reported because companies who have this happen to them today broadly speaking, don't talk about it. And if you then look beyond that, there are an even larger number of incidents which are not being detected. Now, how can you say that? How can I say that with any confidence? Because obviously, how do you know what you don't know, right? It's kind of the unknown, unknown problem. Um, the reason that I'm pretty confident to say that is that I know that the overwhelming majority of companies aren't looking. And in those organisations where we have gone to go and look for them when they haven't been looking, we have almost inevitably found something. So 
so obviously trying to build you know, statistical uh, uh, um, projections from this is incredibly difficult. That's something we did earlier um, this year with the UK Cabinet Office around the cost of cybercrime report. Um, we made it very clear it's very, very difficult to project from the limited data sets that we've got. But there is a huge amount of this going on which is not even being detected. And if we look at the sort of reporting issues that you raise, one of the big challenges that we've got here is that absolutely there is a desperate need for better reporting so that we've got better data to go on about how big this problem is. But on the other hand, one of the effects of mandatory reporting is to discourage people from looking, because if they look, then they have to report, and they might just rather not know about it in the first place. So there's a bit of, a, of, of an issue there. But that's kind of what the landscape looks like. Um, the second theme that I wanted to, to pick up on was that I think there's, a kind of, there's two views that I hear, neither of which I particularly agree with. The first of which is the um, kind of the, 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 the anonymous lulzsec type um, view, which is that really this is all because people are incompetent and negligent. Um, uh, you know, really, they just need to get on and fix things. And then the second view is the sort of, um, you know, the, the view which comes out of Misha's Max, Max um, Butler story, which is that really it's all hopeless. <laughs> and there's no real point trying to um, protect this stuff at all. So I just wanted to pull out a kind of few examples of things that aren't what we normally run across. So there are numbered Swiss bank accounts where the information is held on paper in a safe. It's very, very secure. Now, there's no such thing as perfect security. Obviously, Switzerland gets invaded by a force with you know, overwhelming force, and they break in and physically get into the safe. Your data's out. But broadly speaking, within all normal bounds, um, that's a pretty safe way of keeping data. Um, a, a global engineering company I know is very, very sensitive about their R&D activities. Um, their R&D engineers come into work in a building where they're not allowed to bring mobile phones or any camera device. Um, they go to their desks. There are two PCs on their desk. One of them is a PC like you would recognize um, where they can browse the Internet and do stuff. The other is the device where they actually do their engineering. No Internet connectivity whatsoever. No connectivity to the rest of the company. If they want to transfer anything in or out, it has to go on a CD through a process where it gets signed off with authorization and so on. And other people who have data um, where the data is similarly retained in a building with significant armed guards around it with a very highly controlled access list and so on. So you can protect information very effectively and very securely, but it's quite a significant um, undertaking to do so. And broadly speaking, there's something of a trade-off between security and flexibility, usability, in the same way that, you know, if you just think about um, the physical security of your jewellery, for example, you know, if you've got it in a box by the side of your bed, you can take it out and put it on any time you want to go out. On the other hand, if you keep it in a, in a vault in the, in the bank, um, it's a great deal more secure, but it's a real pain if you want it because you've got to make an appointment to go and get your... I've never done that sort of thing. I've no idea you have to do that sort of thing. So, so there is a kind of balance between... And when we hear about these incidents today, we're not very sophisticated in the way that we talk about them. We talk about the CIA got hacked as if all of the CIA's top-secret information was suddenly spread across the web. This is not true. Even in the case where something, for example, like the CIA gets hacked, they may manage to get some information, but you can be damn sure that the CIA's top-secret information is not sitting on the network that those guys managed to get into. It's sitting in a bunker somewhere with a lot of armed guards around it and no electrical connectivity into it and a Faraday cage around it and no mobile phones and bag checks and so on. So we need to get a bit more sophisticated about understanding that there's data and data, and we have to decide how much we do want to protect it, and that there's a cost associated with that, and that there's implications of that. And that's, I think, something that we haven't really got our heads around yet. We talk about data. 
and actually it matters what data and how much we mind about it. And that's something that we as consumers and also as businesses need to get better about talking about. And then the third, um, the third aspect I want to talk about very briefly is, is, is to contrast, we talked about physical security and cybersecurity. The, the, the big difference in cybersecurity really is there's very little deterrence today. We see a little bit about people going to prison, but there's very, very, it's disproportionate to the amount of this that's going on. And really that reflects the difficulty in applying nation-state-driven laws um, and uh, our approaches to security, which is what we normally are used to in cyberspace. Um, and that's particularly hard because it is a global environment and you rely on cooperation with other states who don't necessarily share your values. So if, for example, we talked about espionage, there are certainly countries who are involved in espionage. And we know we're in the UK, we have a quite clear idea of the difference between business and government. Many other countries don't have such a clear difference between business and government. So is it corporate espionage or state-sponsored espionage? Well, actually, there's not necessarily any difference in some of these cases. So cooperating with those nations to try and deal with deterrence and the enforcement of laws is fundamentally extremely difficult. And in fact, I know a senior UK police officer, there's a, there's a key treaty that's involved in doing this sort of thing called the MLAT, the Multilateral Assistance Treaty, and he refers to it as the method for letting assholes take over. On those thoughts, I'll leave it. Well, I think that um, if we bring the whole perspective to mobile um, and to the reality of you know, what hacking is and whatnot, I think that we all need to realize that theft and deceit have existed for as long as human race has been around and that hacking is more to do with breaking and entering rather than stealing something. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, the first hacks in cyberspace, it was all about who can get into a place and get out as fast as you can. But because the people actually doing this wouldn't know what to do with that data or who to sell it to. They were basically individuals trying to prove how clever they were and how creative they were in creating code that could actually go through systems. Now... I think that most people, when they hear about cyber attacks and hacks, um, and especially now in the papers, you know, celebrities' mobile phones being hacked by newspapers, um, people think, oh, my God, I didn't know that you could do that. How about if someone is going to do that to my phone? So there is a consumer level that, you know, is kind of scaring, uh, you know, people in their own personal world. Um, but there's major corporations having, uh, uh, you know, officially undeclared hacks like Google in China that, you know, is never going to stop. It's never going to stop because it's like you're never going to stop people stealing handbags on Oxford Street. It's just going to happen. So I think that um, the kind of clients we work with, which are mobile uh, industry leaders, uh, handset manufacturers, networks, um, the main concern is really how to not just prevent it, but how to teach their customers uh, how to prevent something like this or what to do when you've noticed something funny in your statement. You know, what's that, what does that mean? Um, and um, if, if one really wanted to be evil in the mini-me evil way, I'm going to give you a recipe. Um, there is something called the Android Marketplace. It's a website 
where if you're a developer, you create an Android application, you put it up there, and then anyone can download it to their phone. Massive, massive supermarket, self-served by developers for customers. Well, I bet you, if, if, if you are one of these evil people that want to disrupt the industry, all you have to create is an app called Sexy Mamas, and within three hours, you will achieve a million downloads. Because it's the people installing it by themselves on their handsets. And from there to eternity is Bazier Lightweight. Like it's, hello. So, and there's no prevention for this because the industry is growing at such a pace of self-serving mode that no one could control if this is going to happen. Because our company, for example, for an entire year is <clears throat> delivering recommendations of unheard of apps, good local hyper-local applications in over 20 countries for, for one of these uh, handset companies. And I always wonder, you know, this self-serving supermarket, when is it going to enter into trouble? Someone really wanting to download something awful into everybody's handset. So I think that teaching people how to protect themselves individually is a must these days. Um, and it's something that we do in other areas of our lives. If you are a kid and you grow up in New York City, since the minute you say mama, your parents are obsessed with teaching you how to be street smart, right? Like, don't talk to strangers, walk next to the wall with your handbags there on the, on the, high, on the street, don't let anyone come near you people asking you for money, run, you know, all these things, you know. Now, people that are very savvy with technology know when you arrive at a place like a website or an e-commerce site and it looks funny. I cannot explain what it is. But you know that the way they lay out or the way they're asking me for where I live is just funny. So I run. But I'm thinking, how many people are just going to fall into this net? So... I think it's educational. I think that what we need to do is acknowledge hacks are going to happen, acknowledge that there are some organized crime in all areas of our lives, that technology is simply just one of the spaces where we live and do things, and uh, that people need to understand what to do not to fall into that trap. Thanks very much. Thank you. Just before uh, Damien says this bit, I, I would just say it's incredible how, how easily you can be caught off your guard. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm so far from being an expert in any of this um, that I, you know, I'm pretty much kind of beginner level. Um, and I find I'd fallen into a, a sort of trap myself the other day. Um, somebody I knew quite well on Facebook um, sent me a message um, with an attachment saying... WTF, question mark, you look so stupid in this video. Yes. And, of course, my vanity, you know, I couldn't... I, what, what, what do you mean I look stupid in this video? Click, oh! You know, actually, it, no harm done. You know, whatever virus had been sent was stopped by our BBC firewall. Um, but it was pretty stupid of me to click on that. And she immediately followed up by saying, like, I'm really sorry, it didn't come from me. My computer sent it out, etc." Um, but, you know, so easy... If I had just stopped and paused for a moment, I thought, that doesn't look right. And I hardly ever, you know, I would never click on something from somebody I don't know. But it, it just shows, you know, a momentary lapse of concentration and you go and do something stupid and then they're in. 
Damien. Um, thank you. Um, a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Firstly, on, on why is sort of cybersecurity a national issue and an issue for the government? Um, in the recent defence spending review, uh, whilst there were cuts in most areas of defence spending, there was an, actually an increase in the amount of money the government spends on protection against cybersecurity. Uh, because of a recognition that it's a, it's a growing threat that the country has to invest money in. And I think the danger there comes from uh, our vulnerability to systems um, and systems failure and the, the risk in terms of national security of, if you like, the, the asymmetric risk of the damage that can be done from a successful cyber attack from a relatively small number of people um, to, um, com- compared to a conventional threat that might come from a military attack. So if you could imagine that our, our networks were such that we couldn't get supplies of food, water, power to large areas of the country, the country quickly becomes quite ungovernable. Uh, and those risks could exist from cyber attack. They can also exist from uh, um, the work in America being done, looking at this, at uh, what, these, what they call uh, severe space weather uh, or uh, upper atmosphere um, atomic detonation as well, which has the capacity to, to wipe out electronic systems, computer systems over a very large area. And actually, the risk was put to me that if we ever had a sort of the risk of nuclear technology falling into the hands of rogue operators is not a sort of conventional nuclear attack on a, on a city, which might, uh, which might directly kill sort of 40, 50, 60,000 people, which would be devastating in its own right, but an attack that could wipe out all the computer systems in the country uh, and, make, uh, and, and leave us without basic systems to support everyday life for months, uh, if not years. Um, so the, the, these are, I think, sort of very real threats. And whilst I think the panel have set out the huge complexity uh, and enormity and, and perhaps near impossibility in dealing with every eventuality, I think it is something where we have to employ some of the best minds in the country to try and understand how we best protect and, and defend the, the systems that make the country work. In the same way, I suppose, in the Second World War, we employed some of the best minds in the country trying to break down the, the codes and ciphers and, and signals of the... Uh, of the German Navy to protect ourselves then as well. So, so I suppose that there's always been a necessity for that type of defence work, but I think it's, uh, it's increasingly important today. The, the question then of, of sort of personal defence, which we, we've just touched on, and seems an extraordinarily sort of topical issue to be talking about uh, today as the, as the issue on, the, on phone hacking sort of has rears its head again and goes to the next, next stage of interest. I suppose I, I have sort of two views on that. One is I think we, uh, we do have a personal responsibility, I think, to, pr- to protect ourselves and employ common sense and, and educate people about that. You know, I'm always amazed when, uh, certainly during the last general election, a, sort of a candidate somewhere would put something stupid on Twitter uh, and there'd be a huge round that ended up being deselected by their party and everyone blamed Twitter. Well, they blamed the idiot. You know, Twitter was just the medium. which they, de- they managed to have the easy-to-use media. They demonstrated the fact they're an idiot to a very large number of people um, and that quickly sped up the process of the end of their political career, but, uh, which probably inevitably would have happened at some point, some point later on anyway. Um, so, don't, so, don't enti- so if you use uh, these social media, recognise they're, they're, they're media sites. If you say something on Twitter, it is just as real as if you'd uh, written it on your blog, written it in a newspaper article, said it in, a, in, a, in an interview. It, it exists there. Um, if you put information about yourself on Facebook, make sure it's the sort of information you're happy for almost anyone to see, because the chances are almost anyone will see it at some point. And don't put all your, you know, your, your, sort of your Swiss bank account number and your sort of girlfriend's telephone numbers and everything else, don't put that on your, on your, on your Facebook profile, because the chances are it won't be safe. And I think you're right. Experience teaches you when, uh, when something doesn't look, doesn't look right, when it's been sent by a friend. Um, I, I, I like you, Frank. I mean, I think when you're, when you're in the business of having your photograph taken and appearing on film, your, your vanity does override you far, far too often. And uh, the temptation to check whether 
whether someone's being uh, uh, being sort of critical about one of your performances or just uh, trying to help you out is is too much sometimes. But but that so so th- those risks do exist, and people do have a personal responsibility as they do in other areas of their life. But I think there's there's another question which I think touches on the the phone hacking story um, a bit, which is uh, what are the rules uh, and which we expect leaders in society to follow and corporates corporates to follow. So in the case of or phone hacking again. I think you know people probably have to assume that that, that mobile tele- telecommunications devices are not secure, um, and therefore, if you want to have very secret conversations with people, you know, don't 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 use your mobile phone to do them, uh, or use a secure mobile phone. And um, I mean that's not that's not new. I mean there was the whole debate in America about whether Barack Obama should be allowed to carry on using his BlackBerry or not for for that very reason. Um, so there's always been a been a vulnerability there. Um, but I think it's just what's acceptable. Accepting the fact that these vulnerabilities exist and accepting the fact that we have personal responsibility, does that mean that within certain limits, it, it's, everything is up for grabs? And, it, and, it's, and it's fair and, and reasonable for anyone to access anything they want and to use it for their own commercial gain, which is, which is the issue we have at, at the heart of the phone hacking dispute. And should there be uh, not only sort of clearer rules of punishment for people who have clearly breached other people's security uh, for their own uh, personal advantage... But should there be a culture where there is more inquiry about that, how, how that is taking place? So and I do wonder, with, with, with where we are with phone hacking, we will, we will move to a more clearer world where if a newspaper editor has got a journalist coming to them with a story about a member of the royal family and some, some new acquaintance that, they, that they've made, that there is more of a culture of disclosure within that organisation about how that information was obtained and a clearer understanding of the risk people are running in seeking to use and obtain that sort of information within a corporate environment. Because I think then that, that does at least start to create some better structure of policing and rules of engagement for how people seek data and how they use it. Because we probably have to accept the fact we will never live in a perfectly secure world with all the modern systems that we, that we seek, seek to use. Or we can, we, can, we can not use them and make ourselves more secure. Or there are extremes we can take to make ourselves more secure. But in reality, those are not steps that most people will seek to take. So I think there has to be, a, I think, increasingly a clearer system of rules around the way data is obtained and the way data is used. Uh, so that it's quite clear that people who are wrongdoers are, are, are punished and there is some defence that people have because I don't think it's right that we could live in a society where because more information about us is, is more readily accessible than it's ever been before, anything that people might find interesting about you is in the public interest to know. Um, and I think there has to be some limit there. Great. Thanks very much. Right, we've got about 40 minutes or less for questions. Let's start off over here. Um, Derek Wyatt, uh, just one quick point. If a tree can take down the pylons in Toronto and then cause a blackout in New York for 24 hours accidentally, this is clearly cybersecurity is much more serious than we let ourselves in for. And if I was Al-Qaeda or Russian or Chinese, I would have deep-seated, you know, deep-throat people for 10 years in America or in Britain or wherever just waiting for the opportunity to take something down. So I wonder whether even 640 million or billion or whatever it is we're paying is really just a drop in the ocean. That's just a point. My real question is, where's the citizen go? So um, for PlayStation 3, 170 million, at least that's how many we think had their bank accounts hacked. But where do they go? Sony refuses to put all the information up. The citizen doesn't know quite whether they are, their, their card's been taken or not. So where, where are we going to go for the citizen? To take these issues, Damien, do you want to? Sorry, do you want to? Yeah, I think I think it's a 
it's a really good point. I think I, I think that's why there has there have to be some sort of obligations on on the on the companies and organisations that we seek to share our information with as well. And consumers can then go to uh, can go to companies that they feel have got a better track record and they trust more. And I think the question is: should the, what level, what power of oversight is there over the way organisations handle and deal with with personal data and information, and what sort of redress do those organisations or regulators have over companies like that? I think, I'm sure that is that is that is. Uh, a world we will move further towards because I think there has to be a, there has to be a bit of responsibility here as well. On one level, if a company has clearly failed badly, it will it will have a very negative impact on them commercially as well. But but I think there has to be some protection as well to make sure there's not the level of total failure that we have seen in the past. I think it's what I said before. Um, you have to take responsibility for yourself. So if you're a PlayStation player, you have your data there, and the company's not really helping your immediate reaction would be, I'm going to call my bank, I'm going to cancel my credit cards, I'm going to cancel passwords. You know, you then react to brand new data for you. I mean, the opportunity here is to really create groundbreaking innovation in the world of credit cards because I find fascinating that I am a number at Visa. Why doesn't that number change at random uh, so that, you know, it's virtually changing all the time and only I know how to unlock it or lock it. Welcome to not having a plastic car. I mean, I'm waiting for someone to come up with this. So just like when you go to Paris and a thief steals your handbag, you have to go and change your passport and whatnot because, God forbid, you know, that passport falls in the hands of people that will know how to use it to enter countries. In cyberspace, you have to learn what you do. And also, um, I think the problem is we've been gathering so much data from people for a good cause. Let's talk about Boots card. The, the, for me, when they said, have you got a Boots card? My answer is no. My answer is no, because I don't want my data to be all over the world. And if Boots wants to know how to get products that I like, I suggest they work harder. <laughs> rather than read my shopping basket. And also, it's not about grabbing data as much as we can. It's about relevant data. For example, in today's cyber society, many, many good companies uh, monitor what people buy from their stores and which pages they look at and whatnot. But it's because they want to sell them better products. And many, many people are delighted that the next time they go to photo bucket they are being suggested fantastic products from the type of things they buy. So I think it's about knowing uh, when you should release data as a person and then when to protect yourself by your own account. Misha. Um, <clears throat> just to sum up one thing, what we're talking about with cybersecurity, that battle between uh, convenience and security is risk management. You're dealing with risk management all the time. That's, that's what the issue is. Secondly, uh, just uh, in response to your comment um, uh, about the cyber warfare stuff, uh, the uh, ninth person who often goes unnoticed, who was arrested at the end of the uh, cull of Russian spies in the United States, made famous by the uh, glamorous Anna Chapman, uh, had actually been working at Microsoft for about six or seven years. And uh, he was a sleeper in terms of code, which is very, very important. 
Um, uh, uh, having said that, I think it's important that people want to feel slightly more secure that in terms of cyber-offensive weaponry, i.e. going in and finding out what your opponents are doing, the U.S. is still the clear leader, and it is followed by France and Israel, and then by Russia and China with the United States coming over uh, the United Kingdom coming up fairly quickly behind that. So uh, while we get frightened about Russia and China, and understandably, don't think that the United States is sitting idly by and doing nothing in this sphere because it is not. Uh, and finally, in terms of personal security, well, simple thing for all of you, and I'm not a special interest person here at all, just you know, observing, 95% of network systems in the world are run on Windows which means that all the automated viruses, which are the majority of viruses out there, uh, are programmed for Windows. Um, so go and buy an Apple, because that reduces, that reduces currently your vulnerability by about 90%, and all antivirus programs on Apple are out there for free, Sophos, F-Secure, and so on and so forth, because it's not worth their while... Um, uh, charging, charging for them. So that's the, the, the quickest way of making yourself secure. And to go back to the original question, I think, the, um, I think what we're seeing is the sort of the history of, of phys- real-world banking compressed into a few decades. Um, if you look at like, where, where did people keep their money to know it was safe, um, it took many hundreds of years to develop a concept of banks, and banks used to make their branches these big kind of, you know, grand, bulky edifices is in order to project a brand that this was a safe place for you to keep your money. So you built up these brands that you trusted with your money and then it all goes wrong and everybody actually expects the government to bail them out. So we had the concept that actually deposit insurance should be capped and you only get a northern rock and immediately that whole concept is out the window and actually the government's expected to step in. And we're seeing all that compressed and I think what we're really seeing here is a debate about whether what's required is the development of private sector online brands that people feel they can trust with their data so that, you know, essentially your, your competition for being an online gaming network is not only having great games but also being trusted to look after people's data or whether, in fact, people are going to turn around and say, nah, you know what, it's actually the government's problem, at which point we start, um, you know, we start engaging with the question of how do national governments try and achieve those things for their citizens online, uh, which has a massive impact on the future development of the internet that we work in. It's going to be a pretty interesting debate to watch and see how consumers and citizens flip between those in, in the next couple of years. Next question. Ollie Barrett. I wanted to say, first of all, I know that the government takes mobile and security very seriously because all visitors to number 10 Downing Street are forced to leave their mobile phone in a very high-tech wooden, wooden pigeonhole. Uh, the clever bit is when you leave, you can take any device you like. <laughs> and I don't know how they got that one, but they're very good indeed. So I like that. And uh, if anyone wants a mid-of-the-range BlackBerry, I'll be there a bit later on. Now, (laughs) my question is, I have a current email provider um, with a very well-known company beginning with a G. Uh, If you don't know them, you could Google them. Um, (laughs) I don't pay them a big for that. It's free. And to be perfectly honest, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if in the next year or two all of my emails go missing or all of them are published in some way. So how foolish am I being? My question is particularly to Misha, because you've been looking at this recently for your new book, uh, which I'm looking forward to buying. Um, how foolish am I being to get my email solution for free? And how stupid should I feel when it all goes missing? Well, what you're, what you're talking about is a, is a web-based solution, um, which is now 
so much of email that it's, it's very, very hard to avoid. As it happens, uh, I would not choose... I mean, I use Gmail, but uh, if I was being security conscious, which I'm not... That is not the uh, that's not the provider that I would that I would uh, uh, use. Um, uh, so uh, you're going to be vulnerable uh, using Gmail, uh, even if you're using Hushmail or Safemail, which is the uh, used to be the hackers' favourite. Uh, basically, the Feds have access to Hushmail at its at its server in Canada. The, the dam broke on that a long, time, uh, a long time ago. So how do you get around all of this? The only way you can do it is by using uh, PGP-encrypted uh, email. That is the safest way of doing it. I'm in the process of going over to that at, at, at the moment. I should have done it earlier, but you know how you never get around to these things. Uh, uh, and, and that's what I do. And, and the PGP is as secure as you can possibly get on a web-based system at, at the moment, and you can download it on Firefox using using Bluebird. It's relatively simple to do, so that's what I'd do. And also, you know that when Gmail started back in, what was that, 2004? I mean, I try everything that comes out of the team because it's my, it's my industry and it's what I do, and within days, talking in the forums with the rest of the software developers, someone said, hey, you know, all the emails are read. And I thought, screw that, I'm not going to use this. And now, forced by everyone saying, get a Gmail account, I went into Google and I said, hi, I set up this account back in 2004. I don't remember my password, I don't remember where I lived, but it's me, Inma.Martinez at Gmail. Like, no. So, you know what? They read your emails. So, when they disappear, call them and they will download them again. <laughs> it's in some server, don't panic. Can I just say one, one extra thing on this? Gmail.com is registered in the United States. The feds can get into Gmail within 24 hours. If, however, you're, a United, you're an officer in the United Kingdom and you're working a cybercrime cyber case, you have to apply to the United States. This takes between anywhere between three to five months of countries which are, have good policing relationships with the United States. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, it's an uneven system, this. This is one of the things why Russia and China get so het up about this and get pissed off with the fact that we're always criticizing them, is because actually the U.S. has access to far greater data banks swiftly than any other country in the world. Um, my name is Derek Colvin. I work for a, a small software company in Wimbledon. Um, Misha, to pick up on your point earlier, you, you, you mentioned Apple uh, and how you know five percent of the market is now Apple, ninety-five percent is, is Windows or, or, or other. Um, something else Apple offer over and above the, these other platforms is the, the concept of a closed ecosystem. Now, to pick up on the point, Frank, that, that, that you made, where you were link hijacked on, on Facebook. Uh, an email, you, you, you said that uh, 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 if someone was particularly nefarious, they could uh, create an, uh, an, uh, an app on, and on the Android marketplace. Apple, you can't do that on Apple. And I just wondered what the panel's view was on, on this sort of distinction between closed ecosystems, open ecosystems, and the risks and benefits that each of them entails, and where the kind of line of responsibility between the consumer and the provider of that service kind of sits. Because I think the, the, each system has benefits, each, each system ha has risks. And I'd just be interested in your views on that. Henry, do you want to address that? So, so I, I suppose what that boils down to is how much do you trust Apple? Um, 
that's what it simply boils down to. It's the same point again. I mean, and, and the, the same question with, as the previous one with, with, with regard to Gmail. Um, you know, who are you trying to avoid getting done over by and what are you trying to do? In some circumstances, trusting Apple might be a great answer. There might be some points at which you think, well, actually, I don't really know that much about Apple as a corporation and there's some elements in which I think that's not a place that I'm going to put my trust. And, 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 and I think it is that, that question of what you, who you trust that, that we have got to get to the bottom of, the rel- relative trust balance between finding a company I'm going to trust and finding my government that I'm going to trust and where we want to sit in that. I've written on something on security in the booklet. Um, what I'm worried about really is that we're always playing catch-up in this area. Um, it's always reactive. We don't seem to be anticipating what's happening in the future. And the aspect I want to draw attention to and ask your view on is physical security. Uh, the first questioner hinted at it when he talked about pylons coming down. Uh, if you go to Germany today, you can buy a small device, no bigger than a mobile. Uh, if you switch it on in this room, none of your mobiles will work. It's as simple as that. Uh, there are portable mobile jamming devices available today uh, from large scale uh, down to small scale. And uh, Damien mentioned, uh, electro- he didn't mention it, but it is the electromagnetic pulse issue. Mm. Uh, next year, 2012, um, you have a huge... Um, increase in solar radiation. Uh, In those areas of magnetic uh, weakness in the Earth's atmosphere, you'll have a Carrington event where all uh, these things, uh, all these mobile devices will become incapacitated. It strikes me that we're piling lots of money into security in the system, precious little in security of the system, particularly hardening uh, national infrastructure and also uh, those links that go up to satellites and between mobiles. If I had that device from Germany and stood outside a bank, I could stop all transactions for all the time I was there. It's the physical equivalent of a distributed denial of service, and I think we're being naive. Thanks, Chris. Damien? I mean, I think it's, really, it, it's a really important uh, point. And I know, I mean, in America, I think Congress has been passing the GRID Act to look at how they protect their electricity systems from, from those type of attacks or from the uh, severe sort of space weather. Um, the, and actually the cost, to my mind, is relatively low. Actually, I mean, you're looking even for America, you know, single number of billions of dollars. You know, so the cost for the UK to, to similarly sort of protect and upgrade our uh, national grid and systems and sort of mitigate the damage that would be caused by an attack like that is, re- is a relatively low piece of investment. And I, and I think it's a, it's a very serious issue. And I know that uh, it's something that was uh, last year that um, both with the Capital Office and the Ministry of Defence is something they are actively looking at, how we will go about... Uh, looking to defend ourselves. I understood that, I, th- I think it's one of the, si- I think it might have been the 60s, that the, both the Americans and the Soviets experimented on, on the impact of these types of attacks as, as, the, as the economy started to become more reliant on electrical currents. Uh, the Americans did it with a sort of upper atmosphere detonation in the middle of the Pacific, uh, and the Russians did it over Kazakhstan, which is a, <laughs> which is a demonstration of how it might work on a sort of larger urban area. But... Um, <laughs> Electromagnetic pulse weapons at the moment. They will be with us yeah. within five years. Yeah. Um, so it actually introduces a new concept of deterrence. Yeah. You, you can actually say to somebody, we'll take your country down. Yeah. It's a fantastic capitalist weapon, in fact. You don't destroy the people, you destroy the infrastructure. Yeah. And then replace it. And the biggest bit to touch on, of course, is the Olympic Games. And there's been quite, there's been quite a big investment by uh, the... By, by local from the ADA into the sort of if you like cyber security around the Olympics itself, uh, not only with um, 
dealing with counterfeit ticket sales, but also you know, hackers trying to bring down the systems that will support the, the games uh, being delivered as well. And, um, and so I think I, I, and that, and that, that there's been a large amount of resources gone into that. And I think that is, that is probably the way, the way of the future. And I think you're right, how we can how they have some really brilliant people working on this and anticipating some of the future problems is, is just... It's, just, it's going to be just a mainstream part of, I think, trying to secure the, the, the basic infrastructure of the country and major events we try and stage, uh, and, and in the knowledge that there are people out there for, you know, whether they're political reasons or not, or sheer bloody-mindedness, who are, who are out to try and disrupt. But, but I think it's going back to ensuring that our citizens, the people in this country, are well-trained, they know what to do, because then you need to deploy less uh, security to protect them. I think the best protection is yourself, because, yes, someone can go to Germany and bring one of these things, and, you know, no one gets the emails. Okay, fine. I can go and buy maize to protect myself from a thief, but the politics tell me that I cannot buy maize because I have to buy pepper sprays. Okay, so it's, it's really not about who's got the maze or who's got the damn machine to make the mobiles be obsolete. It's about knowing what to do when that thing happens and how to prevent it. Evil is always going to exist. Uh, poor Anya Hinmart, big designer, has her store in Bond Street rob up to 11 times with motorcycles and they live with handbags worth 150000 a pop. It is continuously going to, to happen if, you know, the police or someone else doesn't think of different tactics. So rather than feeling the doomsday coming over our heads, I think that we need to acknowledge hackers exist, cybercrime exists, there's millions of ways to create havoc in society. It's about re- knowing how to react when that happens with less panic and capacity to recuperate. I think that's more important than panicking now. Well, just, uh, you know, with exactly, I think it's important not to panic. Um, although, for, for example, China is supposed to have had sleeper viruses on the uh, U.S. grid system for a, uh, a long time, China is entirely dependent on the United States as they're in this sort of rather ghoulish embrace. One of them falls, both of them falls uh, because of the uh, debt situation. And so China is not going to bring down the U.S. anytime soon because China will fall straight away after it. And so, you know, we have mechanisms here which uh, sort, of, sort of tend towards a rational behavior. But I think it is important to be prepared for... Uh, scenarios of, of, of what, what if this were to happen. I have to say that in, in law enforcement and intelligence agencies at the moment, there, there is more emphasis now being put on planning on future threats and how we combat future threats. So it, it's not like this uh, subject is being ignored. It's not being ignored. But I, I come back again to my original point. The people who know what the future threats are likely to be are those who are developing them. And that's why human intelligence remains absolutely critical in, in, in all of this. And we mustn't uh, lose sight of it with all the kind of gadgetry that's going on around it as well. Next question over here. Uh, thank you very much. Tony Gillen from the Institute of Ideas. Uh, just a question on the what-ifs uh, scenarios and just to remind uh, ourselves about the millennium bug. Different question. Yeah, he wasn't a hacker or what have you, but we got very carried away. I think most people would admit that we got very carried away with the what if in that situation. So, is there actually a danger of overdoing the security question? And we haven't actually mentioned our relationship with the government and the state. 
because actually there's a lot of interference and a lot of requirements upon companies uh, to comply with certain regulations and allow access to information, etc. A lot of which is, is justified on security terms uh, and, and anti-crime terms, and etc. So is there a danger with the security that we actually forget some other important things uh, in relation to principles of you know, liberty and freedom? I, I think it's a very good question. I'm going to ask Henry to address that first. I, one thing I would say um, about this... And, reinforcing, I think, your question, is that every time any of us in the BBC, of us amateurs mostly, uh, do anything to do with cybersecurity, we get bombarded with emails the same day from software protection companies, all saying, um, heard you on today, Bregamos, you know, did you know we've got this and this and this? And, you know, which is fine, it's perfectly understandable, but I mean, there's, there's an enormous sort of osmotic pressure there trying to get us to, to do stories on them. You know, all of them, of course, got a, a commercial interest in us doing a story on the programs that they do or the protections that they do. The, you know, there are a vast array of companies that I, as, a, as an amateur, have never heard of, um, uh, all very keen to get themselves in the media. And I do, you know, I, I'm well aware that there is a very real threat out there um, in cybersecurity, but I often wonder, in the back of my mind, how much of this is actually people talking up the threat because they've got a product to sell. So, Henry, maybe you can take both those questions in one go. <laughs> very nicely put. Um, uh, essentially, risk management's hard. I mean, that's what you're talking about. I mean, we're talking about trying to um, mitigate risk in some cases, which is, you know, things we've just talked about there, not things that are easily statistically predictable because they are low probability, high impact type threats. Um, uh, actually, normally put the other way around, high impact, low probability, that it's HILP, um, um, the type of things. And, and, it, and we know that, you know, some of the most sophisticated risk management um, uh, in the world has been developed by banks and um, we know that it doesn't necessarily work very well. There's plenty of evidence. So it's hard, but you don't have any choice. You have to ultimately make some sort of a judgment about where, where you put things and it's possible. And you, the only thing you can be certain of is that you'll get it wrong. You will either have too little security or too much security. The chances of getting exactly the right amount of security are zero. Um, so I think uh, so I, 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 there is always a risk to watch out for here. The, the reason that I... Um, think that, we, that we're right is that I've got a product. So, no, sorry. What I think, the reason I think we're right to worry about this is that we have, over the last 20 years, massively grown our dependence as a world on electronic technologies. Yeah, we have, we've just made a radical change to the way that we as a world exist. We're now almost totally dependent on it. And during that period, we haven't, as a society, really addressed these questions of what is the security landscape that we, in this world that we've created. So at minimum, we absolutely need to spend some time, as we're doing working out what sort of a landscape we, are, we should have in place for security. And as a result of that, we'll end up with an assessment of how much security we should have and how we should organise it. But we don't really have a great feel for that at the moment. So it, what is absolutely right is that we spend some real time digging into it and work out what we do want to do. Richard? Um, yeah, I mean, what we've done, uh, to, to carry on from Henry's point, what we've done with uh, the Internet and network systems is created an entirely new environment for a very old problem, which is how you balance security and freedom. The problem is, is the very in interconnectedness of the web, which complicates 
this dilemma that we're dealing with. Now, I think what's been happening over the past two to three years or so, as you see, if not a little longer, the emergence of a series of giant intranets in the world, which are essentially nationally based. So that, for example, if you're in Turkey, uh, unless you're using a VPN, you can't access YouTube. And you get a notice up saying the Turkish uh, courts say that uh, we don't want you watching YouTube. End of story. China has the Great Firewall. Russia has the fabulously entitled SORM2, uh, which uh, copies every single byte of data that is circulating in the Internet uh, in Russia and is deposited in Moscow for the KGB's access as and when. Uh, And we, too, are creating intranets in terms of internet filtering systems for child pornography. It may go into other areas we don't know. Now, I think Anonymous and Lulsec, because they're so publicity conscious, they're they're useful to to talk to, uh, are actually onto something here. What they are doing is, is they are expressing, first of all, the frustration of a younger generation who feel entirely at home in this environment in a way that we don't feel entirely at home in this environment, their frustration at political processes uh, in the wider world. But they are also constantly pointing to the issues of censorship, filtering, uh, and the requirements of citizens and companies to do things that uh, government government wants. So I, I think, I mean, I'm not saying one way or another what's good or bad, what I'm saying is, is I think there are two major struggles uh, going on out there which are incredibly difficult to comprehend and to negotiate. The first one is a, a struggle between uh, governments, possibly in alliance with some big corporations, about the management of data and how citizens uh, respond to that. And the second one is about nation states actually defining the Internet within their borders more closely because they're concerned about a whole variety of security and uh, espionage things. And the the one difficulty is is that there's a lot of legislation going through affecting these issues at the moment in countries all over the world, which it's very difficult to comprehend what the implications are in terms of things like uh, net neutrality, uh, uh, intellectual property rights, and so on and so forth. So... um, This is a huge issue, but it takes a hell of a lot to begin to understand the real constellation of what's happening. Damien? Just just a couple of thoughts, really. Um, One, uh, the government made an interesting decision um, a few months after the general election to turn off the National Child Database, um, which is a a register of every detail of every child in the country. There have been problems with it security being breached and uh, the potential of it being hacked into. But the government took a decision that it didn't, ne- didn't necessarily need to hold all that information centrally where it wasn't, uh, because the information wasn't being used in that kind of a way. And I think there is a role for government to look at the way it seeks to gather and store data and question, does it really need all of it? And does it need to be stored in the way it's being stored, which, 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 which causes uh, problems for security? I mean, we wouldn't store all the... There are lots of reasons why we wouldn't store all, all the country's gas supplies in one place, but, I mean, security would be a pretty good reason for not doing that that too. Um, and I think for companies as well, I mean, maybe it's a challenge, do they really need to gather all of the data off of their customers that they routinely do, which is extremely tedious to fill in every time you want to go and read a newspaper article or, uh, you know, 
search some basic service. Um, if, that, if that data can ultimately be breached, do you really need it? Can, can you simplify it? And so there could be, there could be simple lessons to be learned there about the way we seek to gather, gather and use data. And I think, you know, get to, to the, going back to the questioner, um, you know, there is a concern about a sort of increasingly sort of big brother state which seeks to know everything that's going on so it can help it make, make better decisions. And actually sometimes it can trust people, not require itself to gather all this information uh, and manage risk in a more, more effective way by giving people more responsibility. We've got time for just one more question from someone who hasn't asked one before. Over there at the back. Sophie Gunter, EI consultant. There's a large part of the population, which we haven't talked about, who haven't had their brains fully developed in the area of risk, who are online. Um, my 11-year-old nephew is one of them. He's got 275 friends on Facebook. I think I'm going to have to talk to my sister, because um, I now know he's not supposed to be online on Facebook, I believe. Um, social media, using data... Teenagers are doing it. How should, how should we be educating them? Anyone t- touched on education? Damon, should the government be talking to schools? I mean, they're out there and they're spreading all the information very freely. And I just would like to know what you all think. If, just briefly, Damon, yeah. Um, I think it's an educational role. I mean, there are, as you say, there are age limits for people who have to use social networks, but they're not, not very difficult for people to set up accounts and pretend they're something other than they are. Um, I think this is also a big issue for the distribution of uh, content, um, and I think for broadcasters in particular. Uh, the, the, the days of policing the watershed, when you could have regulations about programmes that could be broadcast before and after 9 o'clock, it was reasonably transparent... But when you've got a when you're in a world of TV on demand, where you know people can just view TV anytime they want, um, and, you know, and, mo- and actually there's not a great deal of protection of that content from younger people who might seek to access it. In some cases, it's basically just simply ticking a box and saying you're over the age of 18. Well, I mean, you might as well put an advert saying, "Watch this, it's good," you know, sort of a, you know, for a, for a 16-year-old. So, you know, and I think that these are issues that I think content owners and and organisations that run social networks and, and, and give people access to information, I think and I have to think about more about how they create a protection for minors from access to unsuitable material. But there's also going to be a big... You're never going to regulate that perfectly. Well, you can do, I think, for BBC and Channel 4, but you're never going to regulate YouTube and Facebook in a perfect way. So a lot of that is about individual education um, for the user. Uh, yes, I have to differ slightly from David Rome from Wired on this one uh, about Facebook making people honest. I don't think it does make people honest, but I think it also allows people to explore all sorts of things which are good, but all sorts of things which are bad. And I say this as uh, the father of three children who are all Facebook addicts. And, uh, uh, you know, the, and uh, of course, I'm not allowed to uh, go anywhere near their Facebook pages, but what they don't know is, is that I do monitor them all. And it's utterly, <laughs> it's utterly appalling what I see there, particularly from my 13-year-old and how he's en- engaging with the opposite sex, with his own sex, in terms of the language used, in terms of the things that they're, they're interested in. It has, in my opinion, accentuated a general misogyny amongst uh, particularly male children um, uh, in, their, uh, in their teen years. And, um, uh, uh, and uh, there's no question now that and if, you're in, if you've got any teenage children, you know this, that the internet as a vehicle for pornography um, has been picked up by teenagers, both um, boys and girls. And the whole practice of, of sexting, of, of, of particularly young women sending uh, pictures of themselves uh, naked to friends and so on and so forth, this is, this is actually rampant. I mean, we know this because in, uh, in the school where the 13-year-old go, go, uh, uh, goes to... Um, 
uh, they've had major, major issues with this and with other websites in which they criticise each other and teachers, bullying and so on and so forth. This is a huge, huge problem which I don't think that we have got uh, under control and it is somewhere where I think government has to try and work out whether there's a way uh, of regulating this without obviously placing unnecessary restrictions on people's a- access to social networking sites. I, I think it would be fascinating. Sorry, I, I don't know your family yeah. situation, but I'd be fascinated to know what your father would have thought had he been able to eavesdrop on your conversations when you were 13. And I suspect that if anybody would listened to my conversations with my mates when I was 13, there were terrible misogyny, endlessly, the sort of thing. I mean, I, I think that's just what teenagers are like, really. Um, but, so, <laughs> I, the, language, the language, I don't know, the language is, is very different. Referring, re, habitually referring to women as bitches, I don't think was something. No, that we, no I'm serious. I mean, I think there has been a real, that's, a, a real that's shift That's more here. because of the hip-hop music industry yeah, right. rather than Facebook. Right. But if you if you think well, about that goes viral. I mean, let's well, not, of course, it, you know, it, um, it's it's it, obviously it is hip hop music. But I mean, these things are being spread very very quickly and becoming habitualized by children quicker, in my opinion. But um, what what is worse that your stupid twelve year old daughter takes a picture of herself naked and sends it to a bunch of friends, or some weirdo is grooming girls for prostitution on Facebook? I rather focus on the second because at the end of the day, children are stupid. Uh, when I was growing up, there wasn't Facebook, and I remember my brother, the first time they showed up, pissed out of his face home from a school party. We still give him shit for that. So, you know, like he basically, my dad opened the door and he went boof in front of him. Excellent. But I think. Children are always going to do stupid things. If I discover that, I will say, honey, when you apply for a job after college, someone will find the picture and you'll be mortified how idiotic it is. I'm concerned about the other evil, the, the, the one that is prowling on our kids. That's the one I think governments should really find clever people to help us. But families, they still have to bring up children with values. It's about learning how to drink, it's about learning how to drive, and it's about learning what to do and what not to do on Facebook. And it has to come from your parents and your teachers, not the government. The government has enough on their plate. Mm. I, I, I think the big difference, and we're sort of coming to the end of this now, the, the, the big difference um, between being stupid a generation ago and being stupid now is that the consequence of, is, of it go far further and last forever now. Uh, barring, of course, an EMP wipeout. Um, so, um, you know, I, I was amazed. I mean, there's somebody I know who's, um, who contacted me on Facebook who's a, a student at the university I went to, and he's in his second year there, whatever. And I was amazed that his Facebook, his port- Facebook portrait was of him drunk at a party. And I sent him an email saying, you might want to change that, because in two years' time you're going to be looking for a job, and any sensible employer is going to trawl back to your Facebook and find you not quite boofing, as you so elegantly put it, um, throwing up, you know. But it's, it's certainly not the sort of picture that would make a CEO think, I've got to have this guy in my company. Um, thank you very much for your attention. Fantastic panel, and I would, I'd, I'd like to thank um, all of them. Damien Collins, Immaculada Martinez, and uh, Henry uh, Harrison over here, and Misha Glenny for speaking in plain English 
in language that I can certainly understand. So thank you for not making me look as stupid as I could have looked. Thanks very much. Thank you.